appreciate that ministry and music. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are the God of all creation who, by the power of your word, made all things. You keep us, you sustain us, and by your son's death, you save us. Thank you for being the God who is holy, is all-powerful, is all-knowing. And thank you that you love us even though we are none of those things. We are frail. We are made of dust. You know that so well. We are sinful. We do things and say things and think things contrary to your will, and you still love us. And Father, we thank you that you don't excuse our sin, but that you have removed our sin by placing it on Jesus Christ, and that we receive that precious gift of salvation by simply trusting him. Fathers, we've gathered here together today. Our desire is to honor you, to glorify you, to worship you. So, Father, we ask that our hearts would be in tune with your word and with your spirit, that you would guide us and direct us in our thoughts so that our actions might be led by you as well. Father, we know that uh, we live in a world that is lost and dying. We live in a a society that puts on an air of goodness, uh, yet in your eyes is thoroughly corrupt. Lord, help us to stand as lights in a dark world. So, Father, I pray that not only would we live godly lives and be known as such, but that we would also speak the truth of God's word into people's lives so that they would know the word and that your word would do its work in their hearts and that they would believe and receive Jesus as their Savior. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be exactly the way you've designed us to be, to be worshipers who love you and who share the truth of your word with others. So, Father, as we gather here this morning and and gather around your word, I pray that your spirit would give us uh, understanding of your word and that you would help us to to see how we should live and how we should function as a church as a result of your word this morning. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue in our little mini-series on the church this week, uh, God's Church, God's Way. Every so often, we intentionally look at the scriptural guidance for the church. What should we, as the church, be doing? Or what should we not be doing? How are we supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing? God has called us to be disciples. He's called us to make disciples. Discipleship, uh, in and of itself, is simply being a follower. We are to be followers of Jesus Christ. And if we are following Jesus Christ, then that ought to look like someone who worships God. Uh, first and foremost. And so in this brief series, we are looking at worship. If you'd like to find the text, we're in Deuteronomy, not exactly a place you might expect to go for the church learning how to worship, but that's where we're going this morning. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? Bring us to God. God is the point of our salvation. 
So to understand worship is to understand God himself must be the focus. We must have our hearts fixated on him. It's not about us, it's about him. And so the, the beginning of worship starts with the gospel, which is what we looked at last week. We cannot worship God if we are not his child, if we are not born again. This week, the title of our sermon is The Sentinel for Worship. A sentinel is a guard tasked with keeping watch over something or someone. In our case today, we're talking about guarding our worship as we gather. So we're talking specifically about corporate worship, guarding our worship as a church so that uh, we honor God in what we do. Uh, One of the things that I am involved in is uh, I'm a board member for our camp up at Clear Lake. And uh, one of my responsibilities as a board member is to host one of the weeks of camp. And so this year, I was the host pastor for Family Camp 4, and one of my roles there is to make sure we have music put together. So I led the, the congregational worship, but then invited people to do special music. And it's always a little nerve-wracking. What are people going to come up with? Well, when I asked for people to volunteer for special music, one family approached me. This was a, a three-generation family of about 25, 30 people, and I've, I've heard them before. They sang last year at family camp, and they did a really good job. So I was looking forward to seeing what they had for me this year. And so they told me what song they were going to sing so I could incorporate it into the order of service, and I have no idea what they said it was because all I could remember is what they said next. The matriarch said, well, if that doesn't work, we can just break out the ribbons and do a ribbon dance. <sighs> Fortunately, one of her daughters, who I know fairly well, immediately started laughing. I knew she was joking. It was okay. But what about having a ribbon dance in our worship service? Is that something that we ought to be doing? Now, if we don't have people who can do it, that's one thing, fine. But we do special music. People who are gifted in music share that gift, help us to worship the Lord through that gift. Why not other forms of art? Why do we not include dance in our worship service? I have all of your attention right now, don't I? (laughs) Where is he going with this? The fact of the matter is that we believe and affirm that the Bible is all we need for doctrine and practice. So for what, uh, for what we believe to be true about God, we get from Scripture. Scripture alone is our source for what we believe. Uh, for practice, for what we do, Scripture alone guides us in what we do. And this is, the Scripture becomes our sentinel, that guard for worship. Scripture guards us, keeps us aligned with what God wants from us in our corporate worship, and conversely, what he doesn't want from us in our corporate worship. Uh, the, the theory behind this uh, is something called the regulative principle for worship, and you're not going to find that in the Bible. Uh, in fact, very few churches use that term, uh, but that's what we're talking about here today is Uh, what we do as a church for worship is regulated, is defined by Scripture. So follow along with me, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 8. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, we want to worship you the way that you want to be worshipped. Father, if we were to worship you in some other way, it would, it would cease to be worship and it would be something else. So, Father, I pray that you would guide our thoughts, guide my words as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 20 records the giving of the Ten Commandments. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is preaching through the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and so he is giving the law to the people once more, and he frames it in terms of a covenant. If you, if you have your scripture open, back up with me to, to chapter, not, not to chapter, to same chapter, to verse 1 of chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. So his, in his introduction to preaching, proclaiming the, the, the law back to the people of Israel, he says, the word of God is to be known and obeyed. There's a point in the repetition of scripture that the word of God would be known, not just for knowledge's sake, but for obedience's sake. That's what's happening in the passage today. God promised Israel, he made a covenant with them that there would be blessings for keeping the law and there would be consequences for disobeying. And so the, the law is very important uh, to Israel. Uh, certainly the word of God is very important to us for the same reason, that we would know what God wants us to know so that we would do what God wants us to do. In our passage this morning, verses 8 and 9, we have a worship prohibition. Feel a cough coming on. <clears throat> it's going to be one of those messages. Uh, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, any kind of creature, no matter where you might find it, don't make one. His command is pretty clear. Do not have any visual representation of anything in worship, God knows people. He should know us. He made us. He designed us. He knows how we function. He knows that people will develop an affection for just about anything. How many of you are wearing your favorite shoes right now? I know I've developed affections for things. I have a favorite coffee mug. It is the exact right size for the amount of coffee that I like to drink in one sitting, which, by the way, is not much. This is not my coffee bottle, by the way. This is water. Uh, if people accuse me of being a heavy drinker when it comes to coffee, I am not. 
Uh, the, the stoneware of my favorite coffee cup is just the right thickness so that it cools down the hot coffee, but not too cool, but keeps it at the right temperature for the right amount of time. I have an affection for my favorite coffee mug, and it broke. It was replaceable, and I now have two. Maybe you have a favorite chair. Or maybe you have an affection for a car. We develop affections for the craziest things, don't we? Things that really, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter. When we bring visuals into worship, that type of affection becomes magnified. We are visual beings. We like to see. That's why video chats are better than phone calls. And that's why face-to-face interactions in person are better than video chats. And herein lies the danger in regard to worshiping God who is spirit. We can't see him. He is not physically present with us. And so we can very easily fall into the trap of having our worship swayed by something that we can see. That's why churches can have great difficulty redecorating a room like this. You got rid of the pulpit? We've had that pulpit for 800 years. That's how we worship God in this place. Well, no, this one isn't 800 years old. But you know what I'm saying, don't you? We develop an affection for the ambiance when we worship. And that's what makes these physical representations so dangerous and why God is so clear. Don't make them. Verse 9 says, don't bow down to them or serve them. But verse 8 says, don't even make them. Don't draw, paint, carve, sculpt. Don't make anything that resembles anything from anywhere to be used in worship. Don't even have it is the idea here. My grandma had a print hanging in her dining room. It was a print of a photo from Eric Enstrom's very famous photograph of Charles Wilden in Bovee, Minnesota from 1918. How many of you know what picture I'm talking about? What if I tell you it was entitled Grace? Do you know what I'm talking about? What if I show you? Do you know what I'm talking about now? How many of you have seen that? How many of you have it? Some of you have, okay, some of you have it. No, you don't have it. It's okay. They're easy to get. There's even a, 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 another portrait of a woman doing the same thing and, and facing the other way so you can have them both on your wall and, and they're, they're asking for grace for their food. Let me get rid of that. That's a distraction. Distraction. When I see this photo, I'm taking, taken back to my grandma's kitchen. I hear the creaky metal chairs around the dining room table. I see the very dated built-in china cabinet. And I smell that smell that I used to think was old person smell. I know better now. It's just a mustiness of the house. But I smell that smell when I see that picture. Why? Because we are visual beings and 
certain images evoke an affection for us, for right or for wrong. We are very easily attached to visuals and objects. And when it comes to our worship, our worship is to be solely attached to God himself, right? So he wants us to worship him for who he is, not based on an image. God makes it abundantly clear in his law that his people must worship him within his boundaries. We are not free to worship him in any way that we please. So when you go into a church that has images of Jesus or statues or stained glass or you go into some business or you go into some home, it's a violation of God's demand for worship. Verse 8 is don't make them. Verse 9 is don't bow down or serve them. Did you catch the assumption here? Verse 8, don't make these images, these idols. Verse 9 is, other people have already made them. Don't worship or serve them. They already exist. To bow is to recognize the sovereignty of a God. To serve is to express commitment to that sovereignty in a practical and tangible way. Don't do it. God was not unclear in what he wanted as worship from his people, and did Israel obey? No. And what happened when they did not obey? Well, he tells us what he's going to do, and then we look throughout the Old Testament, we see what he did. He said, for I, the, this is verse 9, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, by the way, jealousy is sin for us because we're not worthy of being worshipped. We cannot be jealous. But God is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, is God saying here that uh, when I sin, my children pay for it? That's not what he's saying because that's not how he works. But what he's saying is the sin that I commit my children are going to repeat, and so will their children, and so will theirs. That's what he means by visiting their iniquity on the third and fourth generation. This sin of yours will be repeated, and its consequences will be repeated by subsequent generations. Now, do you see in the text what God calls it when someone uses an image or an object in worship? Even if they're using it to worship God? He calls it hatred. He said, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. God says, any worship that is not to me as I am to be worshipped is hatred and you'll be cursed for it. That was the prohibition in worship. Here's a prescription for worship in verse 10. God sends this punishment to those who disobey, but in contrast, verse 10, showing steadfast love 
to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our worship is an expression of love and obedience. And if that's the case, it is certainly not about us and what we desire or what we believe we can offer. Those of you holding your breath about the dances and the ribbons, that's what I'm saying. We don't do those not because we don't have people who want to. We don't do those because we don't find anywhere in Scripture where dance is used in corporate worship. There's examples of Scripture, in Scripture, of rejected worship. If worship requires us to love God and keep His commandments, let's see some examples of where God has rejected people's worship. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. You know where I'm going. Many of you do. What happens? Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his, his brother Abel. So clearly we have lots of time elapsing in these verses. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Verse 3, In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of his fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, or his expression became angry. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain brings an offering to the Lord of his harvest. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Abel brings an offering to the Lord of his flocks. Again, a good thing. Both taking what God has blessed them with and in turn giving it back to the Lord as a sacrifice. Now, we're not given instruction here that they knew that they were supposed to sacrifice animals in worship but the outcome makes it clear that they did know. That Cain, instead of doing what he could have done and purchased an animal for sacrifice, rather just took some of his grain, or some of the, the produce of the land, and offered it as a sacrifice. And you know what happens next. Cain, in his jealousy over God accepting Abel's sacrifice, ends up killing Abel. And we have not only rejected worship, we have the first murder. Leviticus chapter 10 is another example of rejected worship. In Leviticus chapter 8, Aaron and his sons are consecrated. They are uh, set apart for the priesthood of the Lord to serve, on, to serve God on behalf of the people of Israel. In chapter 9, Aaron offers an offering to the Lord, and the Lord is pleased with it. But in chapter 10, something different happens. Levit Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, 
the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They took their, uh, their, their golden censer, that little thing that holds some, some spice, some aromatic things that they can burn and use as offerings for the Lord, and they did it out of order. They did it at the wrong time with the wrong stuff, and they were the wrong people. <clears throat> Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They were acting as priests of, the, of God for the people. They were doing an act of worship, but it was not accepted. Very much not accepted. Aren't you glad that God doesn't do that today? He rejected their worship because it didn't follow the guidelines he had given them for worship. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, beginning in verse number 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So he's giving a little introduction here saying, I'm against you, Israel, uh, for something. He doesn't tell them what just yet, but look at verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. So they're offering sacrifices. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Wait, what? Why not? says it's not because of your sacrifices that I rebuke you. You you keep offering sacrifices. But he says in verse 9, I'm not accepting your sacrifice. Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. In other words, this sacrifice, it's not because I need you to give me these animals. It's not because I need some meat to eat. All right. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Israel was offering sacrifices, but their heart was not right. And so their sacrifices were rejected. So we've looked at a few instances of worship that has been rejected in Scripture, and there's plenty more. But what does God want from our worship? What is it that he delights in? Well, I think for most of us, you probably already know because you've grown up in church and you know the same basic elements that we do today you've been doing for most of your life but it's not because of tradition that this is what uh, the church ought to be doing it's because it's what we find in scripture what do we find in scripture we find preaching we find the exposition of god's word Nehemiah chapter 8. You recall the story of Nehemiah. The children of Israel had been taken into exile. And in that time period, the, the city of Jerusalem had been 
decimated, demolished, and uh, Nehemiah asks for permission to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Over the course of time, they have rebuilt the walls. People are starting to return. Some people were still there, but some people are starting to return. And they have found the scrolls. They have found the word of God. They had gone all this time without the word of God. They found the scrolls, and they started reading them. They started realizing there are things that we're supposed to be doing that we're not doing. Nehemiah chapter 8 Beginning in verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard, and on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Just simply started reading to them God's law. You can keep reading. You see how uh, as soon as they opened the scrolls and started reading, they all stood out of reverence to God's word. Down to verse 7. Lists off some of the the Levites who had helped. He says, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Well, that's preaching, isn't it? reading from God's word, and in helping us to understand not only what it says, but what we're supposed to do in light of it. That's preaching. Preaching of God's word is the foundation of corporate worship. When we neglect God's word, we inevitably go in the wrong direction. Even when we pursue God's word, we sometimes go in the wrong direction, don't we? Preaching is part of worship. Prayer is part of worship. In fact, Nehemiah would be another good place to see some of the prayers that they prayed. You, uh, some of the, one of my favorite prayers, I didn't, we're not gonna go through all, all of everything that I could in this message, you're welcome. Uh, but one of the prayers that is my favorite is Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Uh, how he prayed and God respond in great and grand and glorious fashion. Music is a part of our worship service. And it's not because that's just what we do. It's because we find that as corporate worship all throughout Scripture. Now, interestingly enough, do you know where the first song text is found in our Bibles? It's in the book of Exodus. It's following the Red Sea. The the children of Israel have gone through the Red Sea. The Red Sea has collapsed on the army and the army has drowned, and Miriam and others sing and dance to the Lord a song. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. It's a fun little jig, and we actually have an English version that we could sing today. We won't. But the very first recorded song in Scripture is actually a dance, but it's not in corporate worship. It is a form of worship, And they were certainly worshiping God as they were doing this music, but it was not part of their formal worship to God. By the way, my whole point isn't about dance. My point is there are things that are to be included as well as excluded. Music is to be included. We are to have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There should be a variety of songs. We'll look more at that uh, in a couple weeks. 
our, our music. If we go through the, the songs of text, we're going to have different themes. They're, they're going to be praise songs, to be sure, but they're not all praise songs, are they? There are songs of sorrow and lament, songs of confession, songs of dedication and intent. Preaching, prayer, and music are the normal, ongoing elements of worship, and it doesn't actually take much digging in Scripture to to find that to be true. That this is how the people of Israel, when they were right with God, were worshiping God. This is how the church in in the, the New Testament was worshiping God. We also have additional elements from Scripture that are part of worship, but we might not incorporate every time we gather. I'm thinking baptism. Baptism is one of the ordinances of the church that we are to, uh, to do a public declaration of an individual making, uh, their, uh, making their public declaration that they are united with Christ. Uh, baptism is part of worship. The Lord's Supper or the communion table is part of worship. And the church is told explicitly that as often as we do it, do it in remembrance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it doesn't say how often, does it? And so we do it about once a month. Other churches do it less frequently. Other churches do it more frequently. But it is part of our worship. Testimonies, sharing of what God is doing in our lives is part of what works in worship, is actual, uh, has a, a biblical basis. And I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 14. There's a lot going on in, in that chapter uh, having to do with tongues, and that's more of a distraction at, at this point. Uh, but what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 and following is describing an orderliness in worship, that there cannot be chaos. If someone had a message to deliver, then it had to be orderly. They couldn't have multiple people saying, God has been working in this way and doing it in a manner that was uh, confusing or unhelpful. When we have missionaries come and give updates of what God is doing on the mission field, that is absolutely appropriate for them to do that as part of our worship. Why? Because it's about what God is doing. In fact, Lord willing, we'll have a a missionary next week. He called us late this week. Scott Owen's going to visit and share a little bit next Sunday morning. Testimonies are part of worship because they're they're God-centered. We're not talking about story time. Let's do that outside of worship. But sharing what God is doing. And of course, there are also some practical things that, that we do as part of our worship in order to be orderly as a people. Um, we have some announcements from time to time. Because it's a small portion of our time, that's fine. Uh, that's just an orderly thing. Back in the day when, uh, when electronic amplification was a thing, there were churches that rejected using microphones because of this concept of, uh, of it not being found in Scripture. Can we really use these things in worship? Well, I'm saying yes, and, and you're thankful because you can hear because of it. Uh, but the, the point of the matter is that there are some practical ramifications to how we do worship, what we do in worship that uh, we're not going to find in Scripture, but they are a a minuscule part. They are non-distraction parts. It would actually be more distracting to you if I had to yell at the top of my lungs when we live in an age where you could just hear clearly. So there are some practical aspects about that. 
I knew this was going to be a weird sermon to put together. That's okay. When it comes to worship, there is an aspect of it, in fact, all of it, is us doing something for God, right? Or at God, to God. And so there naturally comes this concept of creativity, of using our talents, our abilities, our thoughtfulness to worship God. And God wants us to do that. I believe that there's an, a, a definitive reason why God has given us a psalm book, 150 psalms all in one book, plus all of the other song texts that are found in Scripture, uh, but didn't leave us a single line of music, right? Because he wants us to be creative in how we sing texts, but our texts need to be uh, God-centered. And we'll talk more about music later. I shouldn't go there now. Our creativity in worshiping God must be guided by Scripture so that we're honoring Him and not exalting ourselves. The Scripture does guard us. It keeps us aligned with what God wants from us in our corporate worship. I trust that we would submit to Him as His church. Let's pray. Lord, we gather together as your congregation every Sunday right here in this room to worship you. We don't come here for our own sake. We don't come here for any other reason. At least we shouldn't come here for any other reason other than to worship you. Our desire is to please you. Our desire is to fulfill your desires. So when it comes to worship, you want us to be word-centered. And so we preach from your word. We sing songs that have their basis in the truth <clears throat> of your word. Lord, you desire that your name be glorified. And so we desire to do that as we worship. You desire for us to be undistracted by the gods of this world. And though our world doesn't worship idols in the same way that the world did as you gave the law to the children of Israel, our world still has idols. And we would very easily be swayed by them if we were to allow them into our worship. Father, we want to worship you because you are worthy of that worship. So Father, we ask that you would continue to use your word to guard us as your people so that as we gather together, our worship would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray.